Morning. Morning. Class participation. All right. Uh, how are you guys doing today? Good, good. More class participation. All right. My name is Josh. For those of you guys that don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at The Well, more specifically, a church planning resident. Me and my wife are here uh, for the sole, yes, for the sole purpose of planting a church in Southeast Austin. Um, and so, yeah, if you want to holler at me about that, feel free to talk to me at Central Market at any time. Send me an email, X, Y, and Z. Our time today is to be continuing in our sermon series in Mark. And so that's where we're going to be spending uh, all of our time basically today. If uh, we're going to be in Mark 6, if you do not have a Bible, would you go ahead and raise your hand? Raise your hand. Uh, our ushers will give one to you. If you don't have one at home, man, that's our gift to you. Take that home. We want you to be in scripture. Additionally, if you have the YouVersion Bible app, you can go to events, the Well Austin, and track with some notes there, or put that URL in your browser. It'll take you to those same notes. Now, we're going to go ahead and just jump in. Um, but before we do, I do have a short story to try to set the tone for the day a little bit. Uh, this past Christmas was our first Christmas with um, our daughter, uh, Leah, and she was a little bit less than a year old when Christmas came around. And uh, we told all of our parents, hey, please do not get our daughter anything. No one listened, right? And absolutely nobody listened. We had just junk everywhere. Uh, and so what ended up happening, I remember specifically we were at my dad's house, and there was this big, nice box, right, wrapped all fancy schmancy. And she goes, we put it in front of her. She's kind of just like mesmerized by it. We're like, hey, you can rip it, right? And she rips it, and she focuses on the paper for a second. We're like, hey, there's more. So then she finally gets all of it open, ripped open. And there's this big, dope, beautiful box. And on the box, there is this awesome pink uh, mini mouse plane, and I'm like, oh, this is actually pretty cool. And so I, I was honestly maybe a little more excited than she was. Uh, and so we take it out of the box, we put it in front of her, and for about 20 seconds, she's just like, wow, right? The, the propeller is spinning, it's lighting up, it's making engine noises. She, for about 20 seconds, is just mesmerized. And if you have young kids, you can testify to this reality that after those 20 seconds, unsurprisingly, after uh, she took all of her attention off of the plane, and she put it onto the what? The box. All right, the box. She puts it onto the box, and not 20 seconds, but for the next 20 minutes, she is enthralled by the box. She's like, can I fit in this? this is, what is this? Is this cardboard, right? She's just mesmerized by the box. And it was fascinating that as we sat there, she was fascinated by the most worthless piece of that gift, neglecting the better gift that was right next to her and neglecting the fact that she was surrounded by her family, the people that care for her, take care of her, clean her, and I emphasize clean her, okay? Uh, provide for her, keep her alive in every sense of the word. And so there she was, focused on a box. And, and that seems funny, right? And it's kind of like, oh yeah, she's, you know, a one-year-old, ah, ha, ha, stereotypical, uh, but in reality, she is a micro example of what each of us do almost every single day. We are there, we're with God, and oftentimes we neglect this king, this beautiful God that loves us, cares for us, and then from that we end up misinterpreting the gifts that he gives us and start focusing on the boxes and on the minuscule things in life to try to bring us joy and satisfaction. She actually is just us in every single way. We just are out of diapers right now, but God still cleans our mess. So that was, I did not say that last time, but I felt really good when I said it this time. I'll be very transparent with you guys. Um, 
And, and Jesus is really, he's tuned into this idea here in Mark 6. He's tuned into this idea. And so I want to jump in so that we can see how Christ, instead of leaving us in that position, he does something radical, loving, and caring. He begins to fight for our joy, fight for our peace, fight for our life by trying to refocus our hearts and our minds and our eyes on the best gift that he could give us, that is himself. Okay? And so we're going to start in verse 30. We're going to work our way through. I'm going to go ahead and start reading. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, uh, come, by, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore... When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii? Pause. Right? 200 denarii equals about eight months of salary. So just whatever you're thinking right now, whatever you make in a month, multiply it by eight, put that number in there, okay? Denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men." All right, so 5,000 men, that generally we add in women and children to that number, so we're looking at close to 20,000, okay? Put that number in your mind. Um, we, how many of us have heard this story before? Go ahead and raise your hand. An overwhelming, like, 99% of this place. You don't even really got to be a Christian to know this story. Most everybody knows this story, right, almost instinctively. It's just kind of, it, it's almost one of those turns of phrase, like David and Goliath. It's one of those kind of perpetual biblical stories that's just really popular. And we've all heard sermons about this, and I would encourage you that if you want to dig into this text, we actually preached on this during our sermon series in Luke, this exact story. Go back to that. Uh, and listen to that. God, I mean, Jesus is doing some really awesome things here. He's showing himself as like a greater Elijah, a greater Elisha, Moses, kind of fulfilling all these, these kind of uh, prophecies from the Old Testament. He's doing really neat stuff here, and it is worth digging into and enjoying. But that's not really what we're going to do today. Today, we're taking a, a kind of a reevaluation of this story, and we're going to take a different look from a different perspective and different view, because Mark, the author, is doing something really neat in this story to put it into a narrative that he's building through the entire chapter of, uh, of Mark 6, so that we can see this really shepherding, loving, caring Jesus that's actually fighting, warring, and attacking the idols of our hearts in order to bring us back to himself. That's your God today. Okay, and so what I want to do is kind of pause there and say, let's shift our attention and kind of just almost 
put the, the, the original narrative that we always think of for this story, let's put it aside for a second and let's start kind of afresh. Because Mark is going to do something really neat here, and it starts with the phrase, sheep without a shepherd. Now, when you guys see this phrase, what does it make you think of? Class participation. Anyone, go. I, I'm, not, I'm a kid. I want your feedback here. What, what does sheep without a shepherd communicate to you? Lost. Okay, great one, great one. That's, that's one. Like 50 people said lost, so we only have a few more people left. Well, let's get like two more. Wondering. What did you say? Ireland. Okay, that's one too, for sure. Ireland, it definitely makes, yeah, sure, Ireland, absolutely. Um, well, really, what we, excluding Ireland, okay, excluding Ireland, what we generally communicate and what we generally think of when we see this phrase is the idea of helplessness. Helplessness. And, and because of that, we see God in this moment. When we read this, we usually see Jesus when it says he had compassion on them because he perceived them to be like a sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. We usually tend to lean into the space where we see Jesus caring for people that are helpless, dumb, right? Like this type of thought. No one really thinks like that's a smart sheep. No one, like that's a sentence that has probably only been said in the field about sheep that prove a little bit smarter than the other sheep, and the other sheep are probably pretty dumb, right? So like we generally see this as kind of a helplessness, um, th this dumbness. But when you were in that culture, right, when you were an ancient Hebrew reader, reading this phrase doesn't communicate the same thing that we hear as Western American English speakers. This is a phrase that was loaded with a lot of backdrop, a lot of meaning uh, for their culture. And the main way that it was communicated was actually through leadership, through, through military leadership specifically. This is a text, this is a, a word, a phrase that was actually used to communicate a lot of who Moses and Joshua were back in the day, that they would lead their people, charge into the promised land, take and, and redeem and lead out. You know, like it, it was a very nationalistic kind of a, uh, kind of a, a leader warrior mentality. It was also used in the latter part of Second King, or in Second Kings, right, where all the trash kings are, where all the trash kings are to communicate, man, there is no one that will lead the nation of Israel right now. They are lost. They have no military leader, and because of that, they are vulnerable to the attack of others. They are vulnerable uh, to to being conquered by other nations. And so, when we see this portion come out, when we see this wording, some of the what Mark is trying to do is actually. Create Create this environment where there's, where there's something different going on than just sheep without a shepherd because they're lonely or dumb. It's that there is this, this, this kind of revolutionary uh, uh, attitude, sentiment, uh, this, this revolutionary atmosphere. Uh, and the reason he's using this is because in the actual area that they lived in Galilee, it was the, it was the, the, the beginning, the hotbed, the, the starting point for something called the Zealot Movement, which was just a, a movement that wanted to overthrow the occupying Roman government from the Israel people, the Israelite people, the, the, the nation, uh, the Hebrew nation. And so this idea is actually, with the context of where they are in Galilee, trying to say, hey, man, there's, there's something going on here that's more than what we understand. And Christ sees them like sheep without a shepherd. They, they have all this passion. They probably have all this, this fervor to redeem the, the nation of Israel, to be liberated from the Roman occupiers, to really start a revolution. And he can see, man, you're like sheep without a shepherd. You have a lot of passion. Maybe you have a lot of love, but man, you have no leadership whatsoever. You're, 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 you're pointless. And like any good shepherd, any good father, he stops and begins to teach them, to care for them, 
to instruct them. In fact, something really radical happens. While they're there trying to say, man, we, we wish we would be able to, to liberate our people. If we could only liberate our people, if we could have freedom from the Roman Empire, our life would be whole. He stops for a second and goes, hey, yeah, that's all good. But what do you have with you right now? It's like, yo, we have, I don't know, like five fish and you know, five loaves and two fish. Give me that. He blesses it, and then he, he holds a banquet feast there in the middle of nowhere. And the scripture says that everyone there eats and they are left satisfied. Christ goes into the middle of this crazy environment where everyone is passionate and believes that their life would be made whole if they just had freedom from this occupying force. And Christ stops and says, hey, give me what you have right here where you are right now. Put it in my hands. And I promise when I return this back to you, it will satisfy you right where you are. Not because this bread is magic, not because this fish is magic, but because it comes from the one who satisfies Jesus. And so with Jesus there, in the midst of all this fervor, in the midst of all this passion, Jesus shows them that he's actually the only thing that satisfies. He's the only thing that satisfies. Yet, when we look at uh, kind of some clues in the text, we, we see that this isn't really what happens in this text, though. They don't just go, oh, yes, this picturesque kind of beautiful picture where it's like, oh, everybody eats and is satisfied. They're like, praise God. This is awesome. This is great. Thank you, Jesus. And then everybody kind of goes about their lives in this, you know, just very picturesque type of way. No, when, when we actually look at parallel texts in John, we see that the result of this sign is actually quite different. In John 6, verse 14, it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world, perceiving that they were about to make uh, come and take him and make by force him king. So these people see the gift that God has done for them. They see the gift that God has given them, the power that he has. And instead of seeing it for what it is, the ability to leave you satisfied right where you are, not because you have more or have less, but because you have Jesus, they see his power, his goodness. They see the gifts and the good things that he's given out of his compassion and his care and his love. And they say, hey, we can use that. Man, we can use that. We can use that to get the thing that we want and get the thing that we think will make us whole. You see, that, that aspect, that right there, man, that, that seems pretty, pretty wild. It seems pretty intense to us. We look at it and we know, hey, like, we can, we can see something like the prosperity gospel. Some of you guys may not know what that is, but we see an idea like that where, where people come and bring their desires to God. And then a church teaches them that, that they should give to the church. And if they give to the church, God will give them the desires of their heart, whether that be more finances, peace, blessings, whatever. Most of us can look at that type of violation and be like, man, God's just like a divine ATM in this scenario. And we can go, oh, that doesn't seem very right. But what's more deceptive here is that when these people were saying, man, God, we can use that power to do something good, it, it's not making God an ATM. They're saying, man, we, we want something good. Raise your hand if you think liberating an oppressed and, and unfairly treated people is a bad thing. Do not raise your hand, right? <laughs> it's, as a minority, I might be frustrated at you for the remainder of our relationship. So don't raise your hand. Just don't do it. Um, none of us will raise our hand there, right? It's a ridiculous thought because it's a good thing, right? It, it's a good thing. 
Raise your hand if you think, you know, you know what, never mind. No, we're not going to do that. We're, I'm not going to put you guys in that position. Uh, it's a good thing. Yet when the good thing becomes the ultimate thing, we'll go to any lengths to get that good thing. Yeah. It becomes the idolatrous thing. And then we're willing to, to corrupt the desires that, has, that God has for our lives in order to achieve and gain that good thing. This is exactly what happens here. Right? Like, man, liberating the Hebrew nation from the oppressive Roman government is a good thing. That's a good thing. Yet these people, right, look at God, look at Jesus there and go, man, now we can use you to get the thing that we think can satisfy us. That, that, that's a little bit deceptive. Yet in reality, guys, that, that's us. That's us all the time. And I want to be sensitive here because I, I know that we're going to venture into some very, very complicated territory here. But there are a lot of us in here, myself included, right, that see good things that God has given us, good desires that we have, I should say. Scrap that first part. Good desires that we have. And we believe just because they're desires for good things that God must have those things for us, right? I mean, I mean really good things. I mean things like a spouse or kids or family or relational reconciliation or even racial reconciliation. Right, we, there are these things that are just and good and holy, yet we see them and we start using language like, man, if I only had this, my life would be whole. If I only had this, then my life would be so much better. Right, and so what ends up happening is we begin to see, we begin to see God as the means by which we can get those things. And I'll be honest, it's at this point where, where God takes concern, where scripture takes concern. Scripture takes, wants to take that into its own hands because, because that makes us vulnerable. Hear, hear me, hear me. That makes us vulnerable. That makes your joy, your peace, your hope, your life vulnerable. How? How does that make it? Because what if, what if God in this moment were to be like, you know what, I'll grant you, let's go. I'll be the revolutionary leader. Let's go free us from the Romans. And in 50 years, these men were old men, and they saw a conquering army walk into the nation of Israel and take it over again. Where would their hope be then? Where would their joy be then? And so often, so often when we see God not give us something and we feel frustrated by that, often it is the loving grace of God for us to not have that thing, maybe at that moment because he wants to fight and protect our joy and peace and hope, right? Now, now check this out. If, if you place your hope, your joy, your peace, if you place your hope, let's say, in your children, the moment they are old enough to look at you and say, I hate you, pack their bags, turn around, and walk out, so has your hope walked out. If you place all of your joy in your marriage and in your spouse, the moment you have that, and we pray against this, but the moment that life happens and you are in the hospital room and the doctor looks at your spouse and says, you have stage four cancer. The moment that spouse passes, so does your joy. When you place your hope your joy, your peace in anything outside of the Lord, outside of Jesus himself, you make that joy vulnerable. Man, it's only as strong as the thing your hope is in, and nothing in this world is that strong. So God understands, man, I, I would hate to give you something to try to inspire hope that will only fail you 
and leave you wanting and lacking just like you were before. That's not a loving father. If I looked at Leah during Christmas and simply looked at her and said, hey, here's a box. Go ahead and enjoy that. We're going to dip out to a better party. We'll be back in three hours to change your diaper. <laughs> right? What, how would anyone in here view me? You'd be like, man, that is a horrible father. Yet when a heavenly father does the same thing with our desires, oftentimes we have the opposite reaction. We go, God, how come you can't just give me a box and leave me to my own devices? But, but really, he wants to fight not just for your obedience and family. He wants to fight for your joy. He wants to fight for your affections. He wants to fight for your peace. He wants to fight for your hope because he loves you. And so in this moment, when Christ sees the crowd and understands that they are like sheep without a shepherd, they are lost. They have no point. He does a very compassionate thing. He just separates them. That's wild, right? That's a little bit crazy. But even when he sees their inability, even our inability, let's phrase it like that, when he sees our inability to understand the good gifts that he's giving us that should point us to seeing him as this satisfying thing in our lives, right? What he wanted to do in giving them the bread and giving them the fish was to, to help them see that, again, he's the satisfying thing, not the bread and fish. They, they can literally be oppressed by the Roman government forever, go through life absolutely satisfied because Jesus is present. That's what he's trying to do. And so even when we show an inability to understand that, what does Jesus do? Does he kind of like just go, well, you guys kind of messed up. You guys suck. And then just cast us off and keep going about his business. He has every right to do that. He's given us a good gift, yet he doesn't. He graciously, as a good shepherd, as a good father, as a loving king, steps in and intervenes. And not only intervenes, but check this out. We're going to see this in a second. That He ferociously fights. Like the warrior they wanted... The warrior they wanted to redeem and fight and conquer the enemy externally was actually the same warrior that was fighting to conquer the enemy they had internally. And so really, Jesus, in this next section, just, just goes to war. Check this out. All right, now, starting in verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when, he, when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now, right away as we dive in, can we go back to 44, Sandra? And about the, oh, no, no, oh, wait, wait, wait. Regardless, in verse 45, I'm sorry, one thing we need to recognize right away is, is the scripture says that he made his disciples get in. A loving and affectionate God saw the fact that, man, the disciples might be buying into this narrative right now. 
the word used made, like the Greek word, has a connotation of what we could conclude is like dragging somebody. If I drag anybody in here, anywhere, the assumption is what? That they wanted to go or didn't want to go? They obviously did not want to go. I'm dragging this human being, right? And likewise, the, the, the word here in the original language kind of creates this connotation that they did not want to go. They wanted to be a part of this crowd that was celebrating, that was maybe even getting ready to try to start a revolution through Jesus. But he looks at them and goes, hey, get in, get in the boat. And he sends them out to sea, out to the, the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, uh, during a time in the, in the early evening when all the other boats were literally coming off of the water. They were all looking at that time of day and going, hey, the winds are going to start to pick up right now. This is, we need to get off. During that same time, Jesus was like, hey, y'all need to get in the boat. Y'all need to get out of here right now. And they're like, what? And it's in this moment, Jesus disperses them to alleviate them from just the pressure of thinking we need to start a revolution. And then he disperses this crowd and just like John said, retreats up to the mountain to pray. And it's in this moment where Jesus, when the evening came, he saw that the boat was out on sea and that it was making painful, headway painfully. He sees this from the mountain. And this word painfully, it's a word that actually is regularly only used to describe a childbirth or demon possession. Now, I'm not sure why those two things have the same word. If you've seen your wife give birth, you might know why. <laughs> but regardless, it's meant to communicate a, I mean, a painful labor. Something that is just distressing all the way, that leaves you ravished and raging. Because the wind at that very hour they sent them out was just working against them. It's working against them. So, what does Jesus do? You go to the next one, Sandra. What does Jesus do? He looks out, and the same compassion that filled them for the group that he saw, and they had, you know, no shepherd, and they were sheep, X, Y, and Z, that same compassion fills them. And he gets out walking on the freaking water, and then he intends to what? To pass them by. That doesn't seem very gracious. But this is, again, where, where being a Western, English-speaking, American person or whatever kind of does us a little bit wrong. If you're not American, I'm sorry. All right? It does us a little bit wrong. Because this is kind of a cultural phrase that we will not understand. We just simply won't understand. The only way I can kind of build a bridge of context here is from, like, Spanish and English. All right? Now, a common Spanish-Mexican-Spanish -Spanish greeting is que pedo. All right, get better. It's like, what's up? Am I right? He's right. Okay. Um, the weird part is, if you go type get pedo, you're laughing. If you go type get pedo into Google Translate, it will come back, what fart? I don't know why that became a phrase amongst Mexican Spanish speakers, but it is. Another one in the same language is the phrase que padre. And you can already guess what that is, right? Que padre is what? What father? Father, dad. Right? But this phrase in like Mexican dialect, Mexican language Spanish, right, is used to say something is cool. Like, oh, cool, great, dope, whatever. Yet in English, that's the opposite of saying something is cool, right? I'd be like, yo, that guy has that bod, that shoes, that shirt, that haircut, that guy is lame, right? Every single, it's literally the exact opposite meaning. But yet in Spanish, it'd be like, que padre, and it'd be like, that's so cool. So it's literally, culturally, just the exact opposite meaning. Exactly like this. 
passed by them, when we read it, seems neglectful and seems inconsiderate and incompassionate. Yet, in their culture, right, in the Old Testament, for God to pass by somebody was literally an act of God showing who he was to that person, and it was going to result in it changing their life. In Exodus 33, Moses says, God, show me your glory. And he says, okay, I can't show you my face, but I'm going to pass by you. And it filled Moses with literally his his freaking face was glowing. Man, when Jesus sees them, he knows, man, in this moment, in this moment of fear and in this moment of pain and in this moment of just scary vulnerability, man, they are in a perfect place because now the thoughts of nationalistic revolution being what makes everything right, the thoughts of a spouse being everything right, a kid, X, Y, and Z, all that is out the window. And right now, the only thing on their mind is life and death. And that means the only thing that can save them is no longer a revolution or anything else. It's me. So when they're in the boat, Jesus sees them, and his compassion helps him, moves him to say, hey, I'm going to go show them me. And they see him, they freak out. Like, what? It's a ghost. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. The words, it is I, a Greek phrase, ego emi, that was the translation of the words I am in Hebrew, a phrase that God called only himself. So while they were over there with the crowd thinking that they had the next revolutionary leader, I was going to say Cesar Chavez, but that's not a good one. For, For the next revolutionary leader, Jesus planned to do so much more by showing them he was not just this leader that was going to to show the greater Moses or Elijah or Elisha, and and you guys can check that out later. He was not just going to be the guy that brought back uh, some type of peace because there was a revolution or because they had autonomy or power now. He was going to be the same God whom the winds obeyed, whom the seas he walked over, and when he got into the boat, he is going to be the one that brings peace to their life, not anything else. Not anything else. And the scary part to this is that, man, a loving, loving, loving God, a loving God did this. A caring shepherd did this. And I want you to stop and hear that for a second. That there is a loving, caring, compassionate heavenly father who wants to fight for your eternal peace and joy. And he's willing to go to extreme lengths to get it. Because remember, they weren't out there by accident. They were out there by the designation of Jesus himself. Because it was only out there in the storm, away from all of this other stuff, away from all of these other ideas, away from all the stuff where they were going to get to see the beauty of God's glory, compassion, and grace in their life. Christ was fighting for their joy fighting for their peace, fighting for their hope, fighting for their life. He was fighting for them. Today, right now, some of us may know this experience. And and let's be honest, in that moment, the disciples, 
probably did not perceive this as very nice or good or joyful or, or caring or shepherding or any of that stuff. They probably were like, man, this sucks. They probably might have even been like, man, Jesus, where are you? They might have thought, man, we're going to die. They might have thought, man, and just a few minutes ago, we were full. Yet unbeknownst to them, there was a caring, loving shepherd that was fighting for them. Right now, we may have that experience. We may be experiencing just the, the vulnerability of life that really puts us in positions where hardship weighs us down and could even leave us a little bit disappointed in God. Yet, unbeknownst to us, in many instances, there is a God who's actually working to try to point you and bring you back to him. Because, man, wherever you have tried, wherever we have tried to place our hope, it is a fleeting, fleeting thing that will leave us wanting. And I want to give you a really personal example right now, okay? I mean really personal. I told y'all earlier that I'm a church planting resident here, so we're wanting to plant a church in Southeast Austin. How many of y'all think planting a church in Southeast Austin is bad? Raise your hand. Don't raise your hand, okay? <laughs> now, I'll be very honest. When I read this, the first thing that I thought about is the fact that if, if in my heart, in the deepest places of my heart, what I honestly think a lot of the times is that if we can plant an awesome church in Southeast Austin, and it grows and makes an impact, and, and it's self-sustaining, and it's awesome, and it has two gatherings, and it's based like the well on the Southeast side of town, then all of that will actually validate and legitimize everything I've done over the past three years, and it'll give my life and my sacrifices meaning. That's the temptation of my heart almost every time I sit behind my computer and start typing up different things for that church plant. That, that's the temptation of my heart. The reality to that is, though, that the moment there's a little bit of pushback on that, on that church plan, guess what happens to my hope? There's pushback on it. And, and man, if, if it were to ever fail, then man, guess where my hope is? It's failing. That, that's the reality. Right? And some of us may feel that weight, but God is calling me in every one of those instances. He's calling you in every one of those instances, whether it's the deep pressure of not feeling like, like you're good enough, not feeling like you're, you're cared for enough, not feeling like you're seen, not feeling like you're loved, and trying to find that anywhere but him. He is fighting for your eternal joy and happiness and affections and love and hope by fighting to place your attention back on the only place you can get any of that, which is him. That's it. The, one of the coolest um, examples, I just want to give one more before we conclude here, uh, to this is the story of my stepfather. None of you guys, uh, almost none of you guys know him. Uh, in 2014, he uh, was diagnosed with stage four cancer. It had spread to four different places. They couldn't even tell, I think, where it might have originated because it was in, like, all over the place, right? Um, that was in January, and he started chemotherapy that January, and he was a good man. He grew up Catholic. He didn't go to church or anything like that, but he's a good man, never drank, took care of my mom. He never was getting high or nothing like that. He was just a good man. He found a lot of his, a lot of his hope and joy and peace, honestly, in just the comfort of his home. Coming home, sitting down, which again is not a bad thing. He would come home, sit down, 
turn on the TV and watch it for the rest of the night after he got home from work. That was, that was where he felt safe. That was his hope. That was his joy for the day. And when that doctor looked at him and said, you have cancer, just like that, that joy was no longer. Because every moment he was sitting down watching TV, cancer was right there with him. It robbed him like that. But it was during that fight, after a few months, he started coming to church with us. And there was one distinct time where he went up to the front, one of the pastors prayed for him. And I remember that day specifically him saying something like, man, I, uh, I felt something different today, something that I kind of never felt before. It was, it was good. And that was the first moment where we started to see a little, a little shift in his heart and mind. It was a couple months later when he was in a, a downward, downward trend from chemo where I got to sit down with him next to him in the hospital bed. And I asked my mom to give us a few minutes. And it was there that we started discussing the person of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, the gifts that he gives us. And I tried to, to really peer in and see if the greatest gift was the one that he treasured the most, Raymond treasured the most. The gift that, that he had committed sins, that had separated him from the family of God, yet there was this person in Jesus that lived the life he should have lived and died in his place so that he could be brought back into that family and made whole with God. And when we were talking about that, I could see that that was his treasure. That's what he appreciated. That's what he wanted. That's what he loved. That's what he appreciated. And, and right there, right there, I got the assurance, and later my mother, X, Y, and Z, his family got the assurance that though four months later he would succumb to cancer, he would also four months later enter into the joy of eternity with his heavenly Father. That joy, that joy, that peace, that hope is the one that Christ was fighting for right then. That's what was happening. And in many ways, Christ ferociously fought for Raymond's heart in those moments and spared his life through cancer. That's the reality of that. That's the reality. And that, for some of us, is shaking. It draws us nothing but fear because we think to ourselves, man, I don't want to lose this, I don't want to lose that, I don't want to be X, Y, and Z, yet there are others, in you, others of you in here that have experienced the hope, joy, peace found in the person of Christ, and that story brought you nothing but joy. That's the deep contrast. That's the joy and hope that Christ wants to cause in us when he sets our attention on him. And so I want to close with this, with this quote from a pastor named Paul Tripp. He is in, I believe, Philadelphia. He's written a lot of great books. Read them. Uh, and the quote says, Jesus doesn't send us out with a pack of principles and promises. He doesn't just guide our travels with a set of rules. No, he does so much more. He comes with us. He knows that we'll never make it unless he is with us in every moment of every situation, location, and relationship. He is not a rescue squad that leaps into action in our moment of trouble. He's there with us in trouble because he's been there with us all along. In our struggle with evil, he gives us the only gift that will help us. He gives us himself because he knows that in him we really do find everything we need until our journey has ended. He is the best gift of his own grace. 
today, this week, and no matter where you are, right, whether you are in the middle of a ripe burden, I mean, it is just, it is bearing down on you. You feel the weight of the reality that you live in a broken world. Or maybe, maybe you live in another area right now where things are going pretty good. Can you with me, based on this warning, this affectionate warning, this affectionate shepherding from the person of Christ, can you join me this week in trying our hardest to reorient our attention to the person of Christ? Can, can you join me in, in even doing those little acts like dying to ourselves, uh, like Tori said earlier, by, by serving at church, or those little moments when we encounter burden, hardship, we, we just do something little like, like open our Bibles and, and really begin to read, read this, to seek him out in the midst of anything and everything, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's high, whether it's low, to seek him out and ask him, Lord, when I am burdened and feeling like I'm lacking, will you satisfy me? Lord, when I feel like I am satisfied and full, Lord, will you check my heart and remove what doesn't need to be there and put you there instead? Will you join me in that this week? Yeah. Will you? Thank you. <laughs> so I'm going to ask one more time, and I'm hoping we can get a few more Michael Thompsons in the room right now. Will you join me in that this week? Yeah. In simple actions like going to community group or reading scripture, whatever the case is. And I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, that there is an active, living, caring, loving, shepherding, glorious God named Jesus who will encounter you there, and he will in that moment fight for your joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace and for your wisdom. Uh, thank you, God, that you are a good father, that you are a good father, God that you are a loving shepherd, that you rule over our lives as one who fights for the greatest things in our lives, who fights for the greatest joy, the greatest hope, the greatest peace that we can experience. And you ferociously fight on our behalf to give us that. Thank you. Thank you, God. Help us today. Help us today to see you in that light, to see you as that glorious and beautiful king that supplies and gives and feeds us in every way that we need Help us. Help us today, Lord. We love you. We thank you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.